Welcome to A Pint with Shawnee B coming to you from Dublin. I've got a very good old friend with me today, somebody who I've been meaning to do this podcast with for pretty much since I started and I finally managed to nail him down. He's in Dublin about to start filming on his fourth, third, fifth. He's about to start filming on his fifth documentary and this is a guy who, as I put it, when he made his first one, he didn't know one end of a camera from the other. And he's built this all himself. And it's a really interesting story for any of you who are into filmmaking or into getting up and doing things. He's not just a filmmaker. He's a guy who's into health and nutrition. And he's a sportsman, an athlete. He's won medals for Ireland in the long jump, I do believe. Is that, or high jump. The high jump. And I'm welcoming my good friend, Don O'Neill. How are you, sir? Good to be here, Sean. Thanks We've, for having me. We finally got it done. We did. We've been talking about it for a while. Yeah, but well, every time I every time I come to see if you're ready, you're going, oh, no, I've got something else. Wait till this. So this time you're actually giving me an interview before you start filming on something. So to, why don't you start with telling me what your new movie's about? The new movie is called Extra Time. Right. And we're regrouping two very famous GAA Gaelic football teams from the 1990s. Okay, so for overseas listeners, GAA is the national sport of Ireland. It consists of two main codes, Gaelic football and hurling. Hurling is with sticks and a little small ball, and Gaelic football is a bit like Australian rules, football mixed with soccer, mixed with rugby kind of thing. It's only played in Ireland, and it's our national sport, and it's probably our most popular sport, and Don used to play it. His family were very famous stars of the sport, isn't that right? That's correct. Uh, my uncle is regarded by many as a, a Pele type figure. The he was Pele a, of Gaelic football. Yeah, Sean O'Neill. He was a big deal in the nineteen sixties. Yeah, and uh, we're proud to proud to have him. My dad also played on that famous team, but Sean was the star, and right. uh, deservedly so. So you're getting these two teams, a bit like the Gatorade thing that was done, where a replay, where you get them when they're older. Is this what you're planning to do? Yeah, because my whole focus, as you know, is metabolic health, in particular cardiovascular health. The idea is that we regroup uh, a bunch of these players who competed in the 1991 national final, like our FA Cup or Super Bowl, and we see who's the healthiest. So the competition this time, the replay is actually a replay of their metabolic health. So what have they been doing for the last almost three decades? And the youngest of these guys is my age. They're kind of 47, 48, right up into the... So there's a few big fat guys who let themselves go and are alcoholics probably, are there? There actually aren't that many you'd be, you'd be uh, possibly surprised to hear. Um, the guy who missed the sitter in the 91 final who everyone ignored and he's just a sad soak now in some bar in the north of Ireland that he goes in at 12.30 and he starts drinking. He's not, there is no guy like that? There isn't on the, on the 91 team, but what's interesting, <laughs> a few of them have had, uh, one of their great players actually died in his 40s from mm. a heart attack. Uh, one of them that I played against all through school had a major stroke last year at 47 and another has had I believe major heart surgery so these are guys who were at the top of their game and you look at them as icons and legends and, and then they get humanised by age so it's a powerful story to see someone go from the very top of the of the sporting world to the humanity that hits us all between the eyes in our 40s, 50s and beyond yeah. and, and they start to deal with the things that everything everybody else deals with so mm. from a viewer's perspective when they see some of these very famous former athletes going to get tests done i'm pretty sure we will find disease we'll be doing a, a what's called a, an arterial calcification score it's like a mammogram of the arteries so even though they're lean mm. i'm pretty confident we will find the disease process and that message is powerful because they don't look 
sick, ill, mm. anything like that, we will inevitably find that some of them uh, do have heart disease. Because your blood work, your blood pressure, those things fluctuate uh, quite dramatically. If you think of it as a business, your body as a business then, when you go and get your blood drawn, that's like a profit and loss. It's a moment in time account of how you are. Something like a, a calcium scan, which is now being used by several cardiologists here in Ireland as the first line of defence, that will show you if you've got the disease or not. I will get it done myself as part of this movie. Mm. And you say, is it good to know? Well, there's not much I can change because based on all the available yeah, knowledge the to me, I don't know what else I would do. So mm. if I don't get a great score, which is possible because of genetic factors, then... If you do get a bad score, though, you can usually do stuff. Most the yeah. average person can. You're just extremely fit, so you're. But I, if I found something, I'd probably have to give up smoking, and I could probably tell what I should probably give up, which I should probably give up anyway. True, in, in most cases, but we have seen cases where people who are very lean and, and look to be incredibly mm. healthy uh, do have calcification of the arteries and they get plaque laid down. I did mention at the top of the podcast this idea that you basically self-taught your way into documentary filmmaking. I think uh -huh. I self-flagellated my way into <laughs> <You that>. it. <laughs> Talk to me a little bit about your background because of your one of the uh, moments that got you into doing this was the an incident happened to your father. But tell me a bit about your background. So where are you from and where did you grow up and all that? Originally from Newry in County Down. So this is Northern Ireland, folks, uh, for those overseas. Newry is uh, one of the towns on the way to Belfast from Dublin over the border. We've had, you know, Donald's life and my life growing up with the troubles up there. It's, as I like to say, it's riddled with peace at the moment. Um, what was it like growing up in Newry during the troubles? When you're not accustomed to anything else, it's, it's just Nor where you're from. Um, but Newry at that time had one of the highest unemployment rates in Western Europe. So it was uh, a place where there was really nothing going on, mm. apart from a bit of trouble every now and then. As children, we grew up in a big GAA family, so we were very much immersed in sport. Uh, athletics was actually my, my first choice, but in Northern Ireland, obviously Gaelic games was played in Catholic schools, and yeah. the structure of the GAA mirrors that of the Catholic Church in Ireland. So every parish has its own club. Mm. So there are about 2,000 clubs, registered clubs in Ireland. The GAA itself, of course, was established back in the 18, 1884, as essentially a, a protest against the British occupation. So it was a, a place that uh, fostered the Irish culture, language, sport, all of that. But inevitably, the nationalist community in, in, and the Republican community in Northern Ireland, if they played sport, it was probably Gaelic mm. football. I would love to have played rugby. I didn't get that opportunity because rugby in Northern Ireland, when I was growing up, was played only by the Protestant schools and yeah. the Protestant community. Were you a good kid at school? Did you enjoy school? And what you're, like, do you have good memories as your childhood? Or I had a fantastic time at school. I went to St. Coman's in Newry. And in fact, the year I was in would become the most successful Gaelic football team in the history of the sport. I played alongside some guys who went on to be legends in the game, including my cousin James McCartan. And we won every national title at every level. Mm. So I was essentially never beaten. But athletics was my big love. I was an international track and field athlete, as you know. So I was always contesting between the two. So at 15 years of age, I was going from football training at school to athletics training at home. And then I was getting my schoolwork in. But I came top of the school in my exams. I was razor sharp, I think, because of the sport. I was somebody who 
would learn from my mistakes. I wouldn't do particularly well in the unofficial exams, but when the big day came, I was always on song. So I treated it very much like I did a, an athletics sport, competition yeah. or, or a game. So sport gave me all of that and probably the most influential person in my life outside of immediate family would be Maeve Kyle, my coach from Ballymena and Antrim. And Maeve was a, and is a remarkable lady. She's almost 90 years of age now. First woman to compete for Ireland in the Olympics. And she went on to represent Ireland, having taken up athletics at 27 years of age, I think in three or four Olympic Games. She captained the Irish hockey team. Okay. She broke world records in veterans. She was a, an absolutely... So what was she training you in? What, what, sport, what track and field were you specialising in? Well, she told us she was training me in high jump, but she was really training you to be a better human. And right. that's what she did for all the kids who Explain crossed her path. She just had a, a remarkable way with people. And the contrast to some of the GA coaches I had back yeah. then, um, this lady who had excelled at a global level on her own, and she never even mentioned that to me. I used to stay with herself and her husband, Sean, on a Friday night in Ballymena. I would get the train up after school for training, and I'd train on the Friday evening, the Saturday morning. And I walked into a room in her house one day, and just it was just filled with medals and cups and stuff. And I came back and said to my parents, I said, was me of Kyle an athlete of repute? And they just laughed at me. They said, you, you don't know. She was actually called Queen Maeve. In her day. How did you end up getting her coaching you? I asked her for help. I was a high jumper and I had won the Ulster Schools title, but uh, I figured that I could do a lot better. And in the course of between the Ulster and the Irish Championships, uh, she made dramatic improvements in my technique and I won mm. the big national title and broke the record after that and she was only too happy to help and, that, and that's just who she is she mm. was a person who would uh, embrace anybody who wanted to, to do better in sport or life mm, Great yeah, I can feel that from you and it'll come probably to the fore a little bit later when you kind of finally found your, your grant so then did you have an injury? Is that what happened? Yes uh, I had a a back injury which occurred I was just doing too much sport high jump will do that for you especially if there's no mat on the other side (laughs) (laughs) not recommended Um, it was actually the the football we were playing in the Ulster final and I shipped an injury there and they sent me back out for the second half and that was the end of it I'd I'd still be frustrated with the the coach who did that the level of ignorance you wouldn't get it today thankfully Mm. but that took away you know, at that stage, so you had a totally, disc injury, did you? I had, I had a disc injury, a prolapsed disc. It was misdiagnosed, and back then, even though I was on the Irish athletic squad, the medical expertise in Ireland was just found one. This is eighties. This is eighty seven. That happened eighty seven, right. eighty eight. And I'd had it as a child. I'd I'd had problems with my back, and went to the top orthopedic surgeon in Belfast at the time. He told my parents I was imagining it because I was so competitive. Hmm. I developed contempt hmm. for the medical fraternity at that point. That's something I think that has kind of possibly shone through in yeah. my Well, it'll be a the theme of the rest years. of the podcast, I, I yeah. suspect. Um, and then were you, you, you were smart, you said, at school and you went to college then. Where did you, what did you do in college? Yeah, I, went to, I initially went to study uh, physiotherapy because I was so immersed in sport. But then that coincided with my big injury, which ended my let's say elite international mm. athletics career and I thought well there's not much point in pursuing this uh, I did mathematics accounting and art at A level so I had a mix of uh, creativity and, and mm. some sort of mathematical and numerative ability I did accountancy finance then I picked up a master's degree in finance took off around the world with my, my mate Harvey 
And when I come back, my tutor, my professor, who, who I was aligned with through the masters, sat me down and I said to him, you know, what, what do I do now? And he said, well, whatever you do, you have to write. And I was like, what? He said, well, you got a distinction in your thesis and we both know how little work you did. And uh, you can do numbers, but clearly, you know, writing and creativity is your thing. Mm, mm. So I said, well, that, that's not much use to me after studying accountancy and finance for four or five years. But uh, did you always have that? Because I met you probably around 98 or so. Does, does that feel, feel I moved right? to Singapore in 96. 96 and we met shortly around after then. that. Yeah. How did you, what, what did you do immediately? Because I know, you know, you went to America, you got into sports marketing and all that stuff. How did that happen? Well, I w- immediately after college, I spent a year traveling and I came back and I got uh, an opportunity to go to actually Kuala Lumpur on a international marketing for the development program that was funded by the government in Northern Ireland. And it aligned you with a local company who wanted to get into export. So I got on a plane and went to Malaysia. Fantastic. Fun. Brilliant place, yeah. And you basically just got off the plane and sorted yourself out and tried to do a bit of business. Mm. And it was brilliant. But as I was out there, I spent some time in Singapore and my cousin's partner was running uh, the office for a company called IMG, who would not be a household name, but they manage athletes like Tiger Woods and they're the biggest sports marketing company in the world. And So IMG, for those old enough to remember the movie Jerry Maguire, just think, think, uh, think that. Exactly. The agents that have ruined sport. And uh, Tom Cruise is married to Nicole Kidman at that time when That's they made right. that movie. And her brother worked in the IMG Sydney office, so right. he was he was uh, tapped for a bit of info, I think. But it's a great movie and representative. That's what it was like. But he offered me a job just as I was leaving to go back to back to Ireland, and he said, "Be back here in a week if you want it." I mean, you know, when I told my dad, he was like, "Oh my goodness, Mark McCormick, the man who created the business of sport, Wimbledon, as you know, at the Premiership." I was there, you know, shortly after they'd created the Premiership. Is there, you know, the curmudgeon in me lays an awful lot of blame on how uh, sport has gone. Maybe we can segue into this conversation for a bit. The passion for the team versus the team as a business. The idea of overkill, the specialness of a game when it was on live. Now every single game is on live. You can watch, if you have a betting account, you can watch games in Iraq and places. It's just overkill happened across lots of sports, golf, snooker, tennis, soccer, you know, maybe not Gaelic football yet, but the rise of the agent, the lack of one club players like Ryan Giggs and people like that. What's your view on the person who says that it was the sports agents that wrecked it well you can trace it all back to McCormick of course he was yeah. the visionary his first three clients were Gary Player Jack Nicholas, and Arnold Palmer and until 1991 Arnold Palmer was the highest earning athlete yeah. in the world and he hadn't won a tournament in I think about 13-14 mm. years at that point Michael Jordan pipped him McCormick was a phenomenal businessman he recognised that there was value in athletes and sport and whatnot. When he, I guess, created the framework, he did so with the intent of making money. That was that was his agenda. Fair enough, yeah. It it is what it is, mm. and as long as people tune into Sky Sports and pay per view, and I mean, we're here sitting one week after two YouTube kids with eighteen million followers each have generated, I think, a hundred million on a pay per view boxing match, which ended in a draw, and there's going to be a replay, yeah. and they're not even boxers. Yeah. So you know, it's it's happening again, and. Uh, it just is what it is. Yeah. If people want to pay, they want to pay, and that's. that's Do you think kind of sports it. today is more exciting and interesting than it was 
15 years ago, I think 20 years ago. I think people look at it through rose-tinted glasses. I think uh, our generation, we, we've had our turn. Um, what's coming next will always be better, in my opinion. And I think world records and things sort of attest to that. I can certainly take a sample of one with myself. And the way I feel about Manchester United now is a, a, a frame of mind that I never would have said I would have ever, no matter what happened. And I'm pretty much on strike at the moment until they get rid of Jose Mourinho because he's just fucking the club up. But he'll get a big payout. And, you know, the Man United share price is the highest it's ever been in the yeah. history of the club. And it's and the richest club that's in the, the world. That's the key. Yeah, but, yeah, but the key, is that the key of sport? It is now. I mean, if you, yeah. list, if you list a company... Now, going back to my question, sport has become business, much Correct. more of a business. Correct. And with it becoming a business, a lot of the things that make sport great have vanished. I would say a hundred years ago it would have had, but in my time in athletics, I knew athletes who were taking performance enhancing drugs. Yeah. You just knew, and you made a decision whether you would take them or not. Mm. I went to the Canadian Olympic trials in 1988, just as, as a spectator, we were on, a, on a, an athletics tour, and I sat as close to Ben Johnson as I am to you now, and I just, I felt like quitting athletics there, and then I was 17, I was thinking, what's the point? I mean, you look at these physical mm. specimens, Mark McCoy, the high hurdler walked past, he went on to win the Olympics. There was like to the balloons. Yeah. But I mean, there's been drugs in sport mm. forever. Mm. Um, but you would need to go back to the time of Jesse Owens to see when sport was really romantic and brilliant and you've got mm. chariots of fire and all of that. You know, in Ireland, that would be Ronnie Delaney, 1956 gold medalist in the 1500 metres. You need to go back that far if you want to have sport that is untainted because once you get into the 60s, 70s it's game over because of drugs yeah no, well mon- money brings it brings issues but mm. if you were to ask the players of that generation would you like to have been paid if it's soccer would you like to have been paid five million pounds a year they're not yeah. going to say no and it's all coming from the television money yeah. so it's like a democratic system really people decide if they want to watch it if they decide to turn off the value of those rights drops so mm. there's direct lineage to to the viewer and there's just so many coming on board. But, you know, the strategy in me says that co- the, the brands, because they have become brands rather than clubs or, you know, Absolutely. whatever. They don't understand. They grow slowly, but they fail goddamn quickly. The Manchester United setup at the moment does not seem to understand the damage Jose Mourinho is doing to the club because, one, he doesn't believe in bringing players through because he's about immediate gratification, which also the board is. Mm-hmm. Two, he's a guy who plays defensive football. He wants the score to be Manchester United, whatever, somebody nil, right? And he focuses on their nil. And that's not the way Manchester United plays as a 150 or 60-year-old uh, institution. Wow. You can change institutions to play different ways. But it's all being done for the wrong reason and the fans get everything. And my point is... Well, they're, they're about one eye on the pitch and one eye on the stock price. And when you yeah. have that, you don't have two eyes on the pitch. And that's what's happening. And if the share price dips, then you, you, you'll see something happen. But Mourinho is good for business. Mm. And he'll be good for business until he's not good for business. And that's when, when the, the shove will come, if it does come. But they've also, I mean, from a sporting perspective, uh, Ferguson's shadow is so long. Hmm. That I mean that, that that's that's an incredible career to yeah, yeah. To, to step into. So th- no, I don't th- think Ferguson would would be able to achieve what he achieved if he just started now. You know, because mm-hmm. he, he first of all was given four years or five years at United before he won anything. Partly because they spent the time after Matt Busby chopping and changing trying to find a new Matt Busby, and they're repeating the exact same thing now. Yeah. But my point is that with all of the oversupply, so there's a, to me there's a huge oversupply of sport things we can watch. Mm-hmm. Factored with an oversupply of 
what our friends are doing all over the world on Facebook, factored in with the news 24-7, factored in with this bombardment that we have of information every day and not really knowing where to stop, what to look at, and ending up really looking at nothing. The whole joke of getting onto Netflix with your partner and spending half an hour or an hour working out what you want to watch and just when you decide it's time for bed. My theory is that it could very quickly come, come tumbling down to the point where you look at two of the biggest sports under threat at the moment globally, baseball and golf. They take too long, they're a bit boring, the same thing that happens all the time. You know, there's, a, there's an argument that says baseball and golf will be gone in five to ten years as that because people just won't watch or listen or turn up. Well, it's, it's, a, it's a valid point, and on that I haven't told you yet, but we've actually uh, developed a, a new event concept in Slovenia where I'm living at the moment. It's uh, one of the most environmentally friendly nations in the world, but they produce a huge number of world-class athletes, and it's the home of modern gymnastics. And one of the things Mark McCormick did, my old boss at IMG, he identified ice skating in the 1990s had higher viewership than soccer. So at the Olympic Games, Winter Olympics, ice skating's statistics were off the scale. And so he had a front row seat on what people were watching. Mm. And he thought, well, people only see these athletes once every four years, so I'm going to create an event that gives the public access to these people. Mm. So he created an event called Stars on Ice, which became an enormous commercial mm-hmm. success. So he was a visionary. And taking that lesson and... Running with it, I suppose, I've created a concept called the Green Games in Slovenia, where we're going to take parkour athletes who run through city streets and mm-hmm. garner millions of views on YouTube. And we're going to take gymnasts. And we've created a, almost like an, a natural amphitheater where they will compete mm-hmm. in a new style of uh, event, uh, including some events that were in, uh, in the original Olympic Games, like rope climbing and things like this. Tug of war. Yeah. But the idea being that children can replicate that, they can see it and they can run outside. Because the big problem with sport right now mm. is that you need to have the equipment. You can't just play golf, you can't just play tennis. Mm. They're, they're discriminatory, and that's a big problem. Well, I mean, you can just play football jumpers for goalposts, but it, they don't. This is the point. They're not allowed out for fear of being abducted by some whatever they're being molly coddled and wrapped in cotton wool and they're as one of my guests said their habitat is shrunk to yeah. where however the far away the ipad is and yeah well don't get me started on that i mean this country ireland when you and i grew up you might have had one chubby kid in your class mm. now, i was it i think <laughs> we've got uh, you know one of the highest childhood obesity rates in the world mm. it's absolutely shocking speaking you're a documentary filmmaker there was the fantastic icarus last year what was your view on that my view was I can't believe I didn't get to make it. <laughs> <laughs> that was brilliant. I know, because you always, we always used to talk all through oh, the years man. about Lance Armstrong, and you used to go, he's guilty of sin. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, but there's, a, there's also a bit of you that hopes he's not a prick. Yeah. There's a, you know, and, and he, he you know, does I mean, there is a role model. You yeah. know, there was a guy who was deliberately putting himself to be a role model. He does his own podcast now, and uh, I've listened to that, and he's quite funny because he's like, yeah, I was a jerk. And, you know, but, you know, yeah. he, but he was part of the system, and... and he could pay millions of dollars to suggest that he was something that he wasn't. But, mm. you know, this, when they started to strip off the, the Tour de France titles, I mean, they were, next thing, they were down at number 10 before they could find somebody who they thought mightn't have been cheating. So it's yeah. just endemic. And he mentioned a few weeks back that uh, he was asked, what were the odds of him winning a Tour de France? Just one, if he hadn't doped. And he said, I can assure you, 0% chance. Right. And he was, you know, if you track back, he was a formidable and a phenomenal underage athlete. He was an absolute... Beast. Oh, 
phenomenal. So you've got to still be phenomenal. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And, and that's what Icarus showed. I mean, that dude thought, I'm going to cycle faster. Yeah. You, you've got to be operating at the edges of, of human potential before that stuff will... Mm. And your doping is a factor of seconds that it's giving you, if that. Yeah. yeah. And, and, and at that level, that, that's what matters, of course. But listen, I still love athletics, but I don't look at, at athletics and say it's all clean. I enjoy the movement. I enjoy the, the events. I think it's another sport that's uh, very poorly marketed. I think it's lost traction. Mm. Um, but sports come and go, and that's just how it is. It's natural selection. But then factor in one other issue as well coming here quick and fast is the idea of um, the virtual world and how video sports video gaming has come on to the point where things like Ready Player One, you can be on the pitch playing your face, the commentator calls out your name, you score the winning goal in the cup final, and as far as the record books in that particular game show, you're you're the man. Yeah, I mean, just, a lot of the some of the professional teams, sports teams, soccer teams in particular, have got their own kids who are paid to be pro gamers. Mm. And, but that's what kids want to do. They want to rock up to a stadium and watch people play a computer game rather than yeah. a real game. Yeah. And you can shout and moan about that, but that's just what kids want to do these days. Mm. And that's by virtue of you know what Silicon Valley has spat out and. You could say the nerds have won, and humans as a species are becoming physically less capable. Mm. You'll always have that minuscule elite, but mm. um, who who will push on and excel. But generally speaking, we're um, we're just outside. Yeah, so I think lab. just that last ten minutes, you would probably agree with me that there is a likelihood for a decimation of sport on the horizon. I think it'll always be there. Yeah, I think they will continue to get paid higher amounts of money. And what will it look like in twenty years? I'm not sure it'll be here. The reason just for that talk was because we go back now to the start of the podcast, you have GAA. You then, when you were working in Singapore, Mark McCormick saw an opportunity back here and came home and did it. What was what was that about all of that? Yeah, and I, I did that for what to me were the right reasons. Um, so you had a situation where Croke Park, the stadium I'll be in tomorrow, you would have had 81,000 capacity turning up to watch 30 lads play in an All-Ireland football or hurling final and we had players at that point who would get injured they would have to take a month off work there was no insurance there was nothing there were several million being taken at the gate sponsorship TV all of that and you had a lad who couldn't work for four, six, eight weeks and he got nothing he had to pay for it himself so not only were they entertaining huge numbers of people and really carrying the hopes of their counties into these great games but they weren't being looked after by the organisation the governing body which had plenty of money. And I set up the Gaelic Players Association in 99, having been given a very good schooling by Mark McCormick. Uh, it was a, a non-profit entity, and it's still going today. I mean, I went on to raise millions of euros using McCormick's methods and techniques. Mm. But the, the GA were so uh, archaic in how they were approaching things, it was a wide open door. So the, the wastefulness of the GA and the unprofessionalism of them at certain levels mm. is astonishing. But they're almost like a charity that now have too much money and they don't really know what to do with it. So they mm. keep building stadiums that are entirely unnecessary. You, you play for the one county from cradle to grave and you stay with the one club and they're not paid. They're still not paid. So I set up the, the players' organisation to give them a voice and to address things like insurance. Mm. And you know, years later, the only thing that brought the GA to the table were the millions of euros we generated through licensing and commercial activity mm. that pissed them off. And then they said, okay, now we'll do a deal. But the organisation, we're almost 20 years on now, has become 
if you like politically toothless so it's unfortunate the GPA, that, yeah yeah, yeah they're not so just to be just to fill people in in, about, in around about 2000 i guess right you, you donald just chucked his big burgeoning career as the new jerry Maguire. came home to ireland his home country saw this problem with the players in the national sport not getting any money not just not getting any money it was it, it is an amateur sport but not getting any coverage for insurance or for health issues and stuff like that decided to do something but it set up out of a flat that you'd rented here on your own got lots of coverage um, and also got quite serious threats against yourself right oh yeah but I mean you couldn't buy that much fun I was like 27 28 at the time and I thought well I'm now I'm in, I'm in a position to try and help these guys but it took it just gathered steam like I, I didn't expect it to do what it did and then when it started it, it I mean it, it couldn't be stopped and then it got political then yeah, oh, it, it got highly political and you know, there were, but there were people there who made it happen it wasn't just me David Burke in Waterford Fergal Logan up in Tyrone guys who helped me set it up and, and recruit players and uh, the G, the backlash was was vicious so and, explain and they, why the governing body didn't like what you were doing well they just wanted players kept in the dark they didn't want them uh, to have a voice or to have a say back then of course Ireland you had uh, the church, the Catholic Church, mm. you had the GA and you had Fianna Fáil, and they're essentially all broken now. Mm. But the GA was that was almost the last man standing, and uh, they had incredible power um, throughout the throughout the country, and they tried very very hard to take me down. That just spurred me on because then I realised not only were they very clear of mind and knowing what it was they were doing that. They were bigger bastards than I thought they were. Yeah. So I was like, right, and I, I dropped everything. So it was a massive risk, but I thought I have to, I have to see this through. And uh, we were all over. It was front page mm. you know, national media here at the time, and I just had to kind of run with it. And then a few people reached out. Um, Declan Kelly from Tipperary, who's gone on to be an enormously successful businessman in the U.S. and PR, he called me in and said, uh, "Who does your PR?" I said, "Me. I do everything." He said, "You're doing a great job, but you're going to need some help." And uh, he was he was a huge, uh, a huge help. Helped us structure things. Correctly. And the players came on your side. It was the most important thing, right? Well, they did, but you know, there was there was even there, there was still apathy among some players. Oh, you know, we're grand. We'll just kind of. Yeah. But I mean, players were getting ten p a mile and for mileage, and they were driving like hours to get to train. It was crazy stuff. In the in the shadow of what's happened since that time you're you've been kind of a little bit whitewashed out of it haven't you I mean you were I know you were a bit <coughs> let you got sort of shafted out of the thing is that fair or? well it was it was a great Irish story because it got to the point where I'd raised many millions and uh, my uh, vision was very clear I knew the GA were only interested in money I said we would hurt them in their pocket mm. and then we would do the deal then when we started to grow as an organization some of the guys decided that I had too much power because there was a all the business was done through a company and you had the non-profit, the organisation, mm. but uh, but I wasn't taking salaries or anything. It was just, I wanted to build it up to mm. do the trade. I had no interest in doing what Mark McCormick would have done with it. Mm. I was using his principles, but uh, for different means. And uh, yeah, they kind of they kind of turned to me and uh, we, we had disagreements as to what was the way forward and, and people wanted salaries and this type of thing that I thought was overreaching a little bit and I just walked away because... If I had contested it, uh, it would have it would have blown up and it would have been nine years down the drain. So I wanted it to, to carry You spent through. nine years getting that going, did you? Yeah, yeah. Do you look back on it with regret? Uh, no, you couldn't buy that much crack. I, I left it thinking, am I ever going to find anything that I'm as 
you know, that's mm. as exciting and thrilling. What was the good bit that you yet. got it done? Yeah, I mean, I think back to the first letter I got from Liam Mulville, who was the Secretary General of the organisation at the time, saying we will never recognise a, you know, a players' union and this type of thing. Mm. And it was just, you know... Yeah, it was a trade union, you were yeah, setting up. I was, yeah. getting, I was getting run out of dressing rooms and I was mm. chased out through hotel kitchens and all sorts mm. of stuff all over Ireland. 20 years later, what does the sport look like now if you're a GA player? <clears throat> um, if you're a GA player, it's a lot better. The organisation strategically has got a lot wrong. It's an enormously wealthy organisation. But because it's it's a county-based structure, they're going to be in trouble. Uh, you know, Attendances are falling dramatically at the football matches because tactically it's become more professional and it's not as good to watch mm. and people are, are switching off. So the distance between the elite, certainly the administrators, and the average person in the club has, has grown and will continue to grow. In many ways, it's a big, ugly outfit, but on ground level, where the, these 2,000 clubs exist, that's where the magic happens, and that's brilliant. You know, my nephews and nieces are involved in all of that, and that's like a cradle degree of experience, and that's brilliant, and that'll never go away. But up at the top, they're doing everything a professional sport would do, Sky Sports, television rights, commercial sponsors to beat the band, but none of that finds its way back to the players. So is the lot of the player not that different it hasn't changed as much as you would have hoped well the insurance has improved um you know so, so they are looked after in that regard the, the training has improved because they now have a, a setup like almost like a premiership team they'll have a conditioning coach they'll have a physiotherapist they'll have a masseur they'll have a dietitian so they've got all of that but the only people still not being paid are the players and i would say if you choose to go down that road and you're charging people 80 euros into the game tomorrow and people are paying all around the world to watch it on TV and pay-per-view, then you must pay the players. If you want an amateur sport, strip all that back. Just take it away, because they don't need the money. Take it back to the era that you're talking about, mm. you know, and try and, try and uh, rekindle that, because what they're trying to do is generate as much commercial income as possible and just hope that the players don't just keep knocking on the door and asking for something. And, of course, then you have the the politics of the fact that it's probably what it is the world's greatest amateur sport um, can they contain that amateur ethos because it's blatant what they are doing and mm. they're getting away with it and if I was to go, if I was in a position of authority now in the GA itself I would start to strip back the commercial income because A they don't need it B it's only going to cause trouble and see well especially when Guinness are one of the big sponsors mm-hmm. or at least were up until mm-hmm. recently you know and the, you know there's a lot of people going, well, why would you let people who are doing sport, you know... What are the, the Cadbury's and yeah, you know, sure. Kellogg's and all... It's That's a nice way to segue into what you're, the second phase of your career, because I think there's a third coming. <laughs> you, you did the... Well, this is probably the third. You, you, you did the GPA thing, and you left that under a bit of a cloud. But the next step was that you decided you were going to make a documentary. To, to, and this is got a bit of GA in your childhood built into the into the story. So tell me the, the quick story of what happened with yeah. Serial Killers. Yeah, so Serial Killers is a very human story. Uh, my dad had a heart attack in 2010, and we all thought, phew, what happened there? Um, he hadn't really gained any weight since his playing days, and he'd sailed through these cardiac stress tests that they do, and uh, he did a stressful job. He was chief executive of local government, but it hadn't appeared to have any type of impact on him physically and so we were we were very surprised when he had a heart attack it wasn't fatal but uh, it was a heart attack so I thought that's interesting uh, maybe 
I'll start to read up on this and try and understand what might have gone wrong there. And as I did that, uh, I got pretty frustrated by what I was finding out and uh, it seemed to be at odds with conventional advice. I started to join the dots. I wrote a book at that time and I thought, well, no one's going to listen to me writing a book. I'm not a doctor or a dietitian or an expert, so maybe maybe I'll make a movie. That can't be that difficult. <laughs> so I decided, uh, I reached the point in my research where I established that, you know, maybe sugar was the big culprit and wheat and the processed food. So why don't I eat a bunch of steak and eggs and nuts and stuff for a month and see what happens and do it like super size me style. I was moving to Cape Town and I was very fortunate to run into Professor Tim Noakes, who's arguably the world's greatest sports scientist. He had just been researching along similar lines mm. out of self-interest. And to put it in perspective for people, Tim Noakes, in a sports-mad country, he is as famous as any of their sporting stars. Mm-hmm. It's very strange. He's a scientist, but he is mm. super famous down there. So I shot him off an email, and uh, he just said, come in and see me. And he had established the Sports Science Institute of South Africa where all of their elite athletes would spend time. So he invited me in there and we had a great chat. And I said, this is what I think has gone wrong. And he said, well, actually, I completely agree. So that was a great start. And I always remember... You hadn't had a camera at this stage. No, no. And I said to him, I'm going to make a documentary because in my head I was. So I said, I'm going to start telling people I'm making a documentary, even though I don't know how to make a documentary. And he just, <laughs> he, uh, he just said, well, I want to uh, give you all access to all of our resources here. I'll be very happy to participate. And I mean, that was, none of it would have happened without Tim Noakes. And uh, I then tripped over a contact that led to meeting my great director, Yolanda Barker, and Rad's cameraman, who were all Irish. And we got it together in Cape Town and had a blast. And But yeah. the story was strong and it's kicks off with you know my dad as a 23 year old in black and white walking around the pitch in Crow Park when there were 119,000 people mm. there at that game and uh, I thought you would have thought it said I carried the movies while I was in it well we're going to get to that <laughs> <laughs> so Donald starts this thing and, and I am working in big advertising in New York I very think, big advertising and he, he asked me if I'd get involved and it was and you know, this was the start of what has now become a big movement the anti-sugar fat is good for you fat doesn't make you fat all that stuff there's a podcast with uh, Amala O'Reilly on a pint with Shawnee B where we talk about all the actual diets so we don't need to go into that however you can watch the serial killers movies on the links that are attached to the blurb of the podcast which we're going to talk about now but anyway Donald says oh, I'm making this documentary and he starts off with sure enough being Donald being Donald he makes a documentary and it's pretty good <laughs> when I saw it I think I got interviewed here in Dublin when I was home and he stapled me and so I was basically representing the ad industry uh, the industry that says you know Nutella is very good for your children first thing in the morning when in fact it's like giving them six tablespoons of sugar cornflakes and uh, all of the Kellogg products, um, why we don't eat eggs for breakfast anymore, which are supposed to be the best thing we can ever eat. And as I used to say at the time, if the ad industry were picking someone to represent them, they would not be picking Shawnee B under any circumstances, which Donald quite liked. But you ended up with this movie, Serial Killers, which you then launched on the internet on a pay-per-view kind of platform that you set up yourself. You, you crowdfunded it, did you? I did. I had made it, but I, I thought, I didn't know the difference between producer or director. I, didn't, yeah. I literally didn't know one end of a camera, as, I said, the, yeah. as you said, and probably I still don't. But I got it in the can and I thought, that's it. 
and then Yola was like, well, no. Yeah. Like, what do you mean, no? Surely this all just cobbles together and comes out of the movie. She's like, no. So I kissed every editing frog out there and I got shafted and I got, and I, it was dreadful. And then I found a, an old hand in Cape Town, a tiny lobster who's been my editor ever since and he was just phenomenal but he completely saved the day so there's two there's there's a very good story if you google sugar versus fat there's a whole rabbit hole on the internet you can go down that seems to suggest that research had been doctored uh, unfavorably against fat and favorably in favor of sugar for the sugar farmers etc etc and that's one of the reasons why we end up in the late 90s early 2000s fat with heart disease and lots of other attendant uh, illnesses created by our love and consumption of sugar, which is a drug, etc., etc. Anyway, there is the rabbit hole, and there's also these two great movies. It gripped fast. I didn't know what I was doing, and mm. people have said, oh, it would have been a great festival movie. But I didn't know anything about yeah. movies or where you put them. Yeah. I'd come from I had some digital marketing experience, yeah. and I applied that, and I, I just needed to start selling it, because I was, I was, I'd spent a lot of money, and I thought, Christ, I'm going to lose all that. Mm. And I didn't know that movies never make money either, so I was just oh, getting yeah. on with it. But the the year we lost in the edit proved beneficial because yeah. just when we when we released the wave was starting it just, to break. It just yeah. it just hit and it was the first movie to feature a what would be a ketogenic diet, which is all the rage now, like five yeah. years ahead of anything else. So explain so, quickly what ketogenic diet is. A uh, ketogenic diet is just uh, when you strip out pretty much all carbohydrate content in the diet, and the body starts to produce uh, ketones, which are um, beneficial for things like concentration and let's say, long-range energy levels. So it's all the rage in Silicon Valley now, and you'd think that that's where it started. For all the wrong reasons. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. It's, it's, uh, but again, I, you know, I, one of the things I'd like to talk to you about, because I was in the first film uh, and the second film, I think, a little bit, but you, yep. but the looking back now, what is it, nearly 10 years after it? Nine well, it was released, I started in 2010, it was released yeah. in 13. Yeah. Okay, so, so you've been working this for 10 years on the sugar versus fat now you know now there's a kind of a metronomic it's come kind of back to say well you know you're, you have to eat some carbs and this thing is just crazy if you just eat protein all the time and you know you don't eat any sugar What where, where did, have you changed your view at all? I'm kind of done with it because the reality is what's more interesting for me now is that medical technology is, is arriving at a point where you will be able to determine by looking at your Apple Watch in its next generation what you know, a potato or a bowl of porridge or a steak is doing to you and what it's doing to me. And it, it will come down to a very individual But that's kind of true process. really, isn't it? And that it is, that is different for different people. Absolutely. Yeah. Now, there are big headlines that you that you can adopt that are absolutely healthy for everyone. But the reality is, a bit like the granny, everybody knows who smoked until she was 97 and, mm. you know, died the falling off a step. Mm. You know, those people exist. And, you know, you could well be somebody that, can eat whatever the hell you want and okay you might put on a bit of weight but it mightn't be doing any metabolic damage those people exist and that's real mm. but there are very few of them um th- this wave has broken one of the biggest things i wanted to ask you is i'm sick of you know whatever happened to all the fucking irritable bowel people and then the fucking <laughs> celiacs came and then the fucking gluten-free people which i think are celiacs and then somebody else comes along and there's the nut allergy people and e- every few years there's on oh, this fucking gives you cancer oh you want to watch you don't take like this is all business as well. Like, segue back to our conversation about sport. Yeah, well, you know, medicine. And manipulation and propaganda. Medicine's a business too. I mean, that, that's just how the world works. And I honestly don't care what people eat. I just like to put out a bit of information. And if they want to digest that and do something with it, that's fine. But uh, we are getting to the point now where medical technology is going to offer you 
the immediacy that people want today. It'll be right there. And I'm not somebody who believes you can live forever, any of that nonsense. I think all we're trying to do here is condense that ragged end of life to improve your health span. Not necessarily how long you live, but it's just that you don't spend the last 10 years of your life drilling on yourself in a, in a yeah. old person's home or a not very old person's home. That's do you still stand by the basics of the ketogenic diet and moving away from carbs? Um, the ketogenic diet, in my opinion, is a, is a fantastic tool. There's no question. It's been around for 100 years now. It just got forgotten. And it is interesting that Silicon Valley has, has kind of picked it up and run with it again. One of the issues, I had researched fasting before serial killers as well, and that's now become very hip and very trendy. I didn't put it in the movie because it would have possibly diluted the message a little bit about fat. But that's something that uh, I'll dip into. So I use these things as tools. Reached out. So fasting is good now? Um, yes, it's, it's, it's definitely beneficial. Uh, uh, so you mean avoiding breakfast, the best meal of the day, is a good idea now? Yeah. yeah. <laughs> Which so, I've been doing most of my life. Yeah, it's, uh, you know, it works for a lot of people. And Dr. Jason Fung is, is the, the lead authority on that. He helped us edit uh, the chapter from my book last year, The Piopi Diet, on that. And uh, there's no question that. And it's something that every major religion has on its books. And religion wants people to live longer and be around and in the congregation. So it's the only diet that, that uh, joins the dots of every major religion that's Which ever one? been fasting. Oh, right. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. There was a, the Pope it was here recently in Ireland visiting to, at a time when the church is collapsing in Ireland like a flan in a cupboard. He wrote a big uh, letter to the Irish people and vaguely apologised for what had happened over decades of abuse towards males and, and girls uh, by the members of the clergy here in Ireland. And yeah, he recommended we should start fasting Interesting. as a solution. Yeah. Uh, I was at a fantastic conference with Swiss Re, the big reinsurance company out of Zurich. And their only really interest is in condensing that ragged end because that's when they get hit for yeah, billions. Yeah. So they see this and their actuaries are all over it, their yeah, medics are make, all over if they, it. If they could make 30% of their old people last five years longer, I'm sure it would have a very healthy effect on their... Exactly. So they now... I, I so you see that everywhere you look, there's yeah. just this fucking yeah. web of yeah. bullshit, you know? Yeah. And how can you be sure? They, they how can I be ha- sure you're not being paid by somebody who's going to take down Coca-Cola or something? Or maybe the Kellogg Company, because you're very much against the cereal people. Um, the whole plan is a 10-year campaign that suddenly there's going to be all this new food that's <laughs> fucking craft. It's an you've, egg. Been, you've been secretly working for craft. I'm trying to think of the worst I've ever worked for, probably craft. We've made these bits of plastic into cheese. <laughs> Eat them. So, so Serial Killers 1 came out. Serial Killers 2 was about... Uh, the effect that this diet, this abhorrence of sugar has on high performance athletes. And there was a guy called Sammy Inkinen, who you work closely with, who rode with his then girlfriend, I think across the Pacific to Hawaii from LA and had never been in a rowing boat before and did it with no sugar on board. Very interesting movie to catch up on again. Links in the end of the podcast. You then did a movie called The Pioppy Diet. Uh, the Big Fat Fix, yeah. Which the Big Fat the Fix, diet. which was about, and I'm, I'm, I'm glossing over these because Donald has spent a lot of time talking about them elsewhere. Uh, the Pioppi diet is about some town in Italy somewhere where southern they Italy, southern the, Italy they eat fucking olive oil and f- fresh fish and and they they've never had a heart attack or something <laughs> the guys last till <laughs> till ages but you know so it's been it's been a, a nine year eight year process yeah. and extra time is the one that's currently being worked on mm-hmm. so that that's a, a career of four documentaries over nine years uh, from a standing start how did you do it looking back 
what would you advise your young filmmaking self or a young filmmaker what lessons did you learn the film industry is quite strange because people go to film school and they become an editor or they become a, a director or they become a cameraman but they don't really seem to look over the fence too much so I was mm, coming in that's and, true. and just saying advertising. yeah I was like well let's do it this way and well, we can't do it that one well I don't know enough to know that you can't do it yeah. that way so let's just do it that way yeah. and you know I never scripted anything I just yeah. start running around with a camera so yeah. I, I didn't do it by the book because I didn't know what the book said mm. and uh, was your naivety a very big asset oh it was brilliant yeah, yeah. it was probably my greatest asset There's a lot of people on here have said that about yeah, big jumps asset. they've made because you don't know what you don't know yeah and it would be daunting. Yeah. If you knew. I studied a bit about film and I've written some movies and screenplays and I kind of go, oh, Jesus, you know. And, and I had that experience of my own one. Which I mean, it, it, it's, uh, it's brutal. I mean, now I'm getting into this one and there's a lot of people involved in it and, and that's the kind of the, the stress of it. But the process is, is uh, it flows very easily now. So I, I've moved on and I'm now very interested in all the other aspects of lifestyle that... Uh, and that, that's something we picked up in Piopi, that this is not just about food. There's an awful lot more. So you married the lovely Louise, who I hear uh, loves my show. Thank you for listening, Louise. That's a, a straight shout out to you listening probably in South Africa to this. Um, she's a Pilates teacher. You just mentioned that you're now believing that it's more than diet. It's about lifestyle and you're broadening your horizon and opening the aperture up to bring in new things. You've moved into uh, Slovenia. Tell me what that's been like and tell me about this new house that you're developing there. Well, we moved to Slovenia for a couple of reasons. It's one of the most environmentally progressive nations in the world. It's a former Yugoslav state, but it's probably the most... It was the one that managed to skulk out of the Yugoslavia <laughs> on the QT and joined the EU, yeah, yeah. while the others just decided to kill each other. Um, and it's, take. it's stunning. Everything works. It's very Germanic. Um, the roads are superb. Uh, Ljubljana, the capital city, is like a small Prague beautifully pristine and yeah. the rivers are filled with fish and it's almost like Ireland used to be in some respects so um, we pitched up there and we've got a development happening in the Triglav National Park in a town called Behinska Bistrica and that's about 20 minutes from the world famous Lake Bled which is one of the most beautiful places you'll see anywhere and Slovenia is just like one big celebration of nature so that project is called Lifehouse H-A-U-S the house that health built and uh we're essentially setting out to roll all of this information that we've gathered over the years into a, making a building that uh, has a health positive impact on a, an inhabitant. These days we, we construct buildings to adhere to certain health and safety standards and environmental standards. You're trying to protect someone from hurting themselves, but mm. I've always believed that the space can be developed and designed so that it actually nurtures uh, the people in there. Uh, I'm horrified by you know things like the design of old people's homes and how we treat yeah. them. And the lead researcher in LED lighting is a Polish professor, and she will not have those lights in her own home. So that's what we use in filmmaking to recreate daylight. Well, LED lights are being forced upon the populace. This is my point. Yeah. They're fantastic for the environment. Yeah. They're dreadful for human beings. So unless why? you wear blue light filter glasses, that blue light that they produce which incandescent bulbs do not basically sends a message to the brain that it's daylight so melatonin gets suppressed that's the, the hormone but surely our, sleep. the biggest offender here is our, our smartphone they have uh, screens or you can get a you know a blue light filter very easily on on screen so it's not right. that difficult flux f-l-u-x is a free 
uh, app you can download onto your computer. So I use that on all my screens. But every light in Europe now, I mean, the, the legislation says it's got to be an LED. They have an impact. And this is something that in decades, I think they'll look back on and say, what the fuck were we doing? So you bought this old house near Lake Bled and you're renovating it using new materials and new ways of looking at developing the interior of a house so that it becomes more sympathetic to human beings living there. Is that what you do? I think I might steal that line. (laughs) Absolutely. Everything from the materials that are used. um, So you talked about wool and stuff like that? It'll be insulated with sheep's wool. We'll use a lot of cork, which is a fantastic uh, surface. But we're dealing with also like acoustics engineers. So I've studied the impact of sound on human health. There's some incredible Give us some sound bites on that. The importance of silence and the sounds of nature are very, very powerful. So we bought the house, the property on a river. So that's what you hear. We'll also um, treat it acoustically. So we have engineers who will um, get involved to assess the the sound in the property because that's something you can hear sound bouncing a bit here with hard Mm. floors and whatnot. We use um, materials that are natural, but are also very good for sound absorption. Mm. So when you walk into the space, you'll feel very comfortable. You know, they've done tests to show that the environment can have an impact on blood pressure and pulse and things like that. Uh, those effects are, are relatively small, but over time, the accumulation of them is, is quite powerful. But basically, you will walk into this premises and you will feel pretty good if you're staying in it. You won't necessarily know why. Well, I'm looking forward to coming over and visiting you next year when it's fin- when will it be finished? Well, it probably won't even be finished next year. It's quite a big project. Okay. Um, it's called the Lighthouse. Life House. Life House. H A U S because it's in Slovenia. Mm-hmm. Um, and there'll be a link to that on the blurb as well. So there are all the things he's done. What do you think about the world today? Given that you're a guy who cares about people's health, how can they live better, longer, more fulfilling lives? How do you see the environment in which those lives are going to have to be lived I wouldn't be particularly hopeful to be quite honest I mean, I, I, <laughs> that's a bit I, of a stupid question to you I think the humanity's kind of screwed and I, you know I mean a lot of people I do you get nihilistic I think we're not in great shape no, um, no. In, any, in any respect I, I just sort of assure myself that you know one day the earth's going to get so close to the sun that it blows up anyway so yeah. that, that's going to happen irrespective eventually we'd be right yeah you know I, I like what uh, I like Musk I like his, okay, he's, he's, he's crazy, but I love his concept of let's just start again on Mars. Because in many respects, that would be much easier. Mm. Um, what we've done to the planet is... Well, there's a theory that Mars was was what we were. Yeah. And is now gone cold. <laughs> and we're here. Yeah. Let's yeah. go back there. Go back. Could be, but I mean... We're, we're, I think we're, one we're of the so things that's... Well, well, you know, we talked a lot of it, uh, throughout this podcast just about if there's a common theme it's not necessarily about sport or diet or health or whatever it's about the human condition and how it's changing without us a putting too many checks and balances on these changes b noticing them c recording them keeping them in check um the fact that anyone can do anything anywhere at any time to anyone um and also that we're losing religion so I think religion is dying in humanity and so with the loss of religion comes the loss of an afterlife and revelation and a sort of a vacuity as to what the purpose is and with that comes nihilism with that comes depression and a lot more mental illness which I'm seeing uh, and a downward spiral uh, how do we pull ourselves up out of it well you know one of the most one of my happy places when I'm sitting in a hammock under those big trees in Slovenia you look up and you just feel like you're nothing yeah so I just say remember you are nothing I mean mm. we're not entitled to be wake up and be happy every single day no, I agree, yeah. that's just not how it works 
But I think we've forgotten how to get out of that. And, you know, up in the Alps, you go into nature and it's so vast and overwhelming and it's just awe-inspiring. It just takes you out of your own head. Mm. And you realise, you know, that rock's been there for like probably X billion years or whatever. Mm. And here I am. I'll be gone. Yeah, but I'll leave you for 17 weeks living beside that rock and see how you are after 17 weeks. You you could. I'd be quite happy. Uh, Most people wouldn't. I think think you might think you would. But I mean, the, the... the stimulation and the gratification and the availability of entertainment and how easy it is to just give yourself stimulus right now. Mm. Um, so that's an antidote to that and the stuff that you were doing in that the other movie about lying out under the stars and feeling soil and grass under your feet and the habitat we talked about with kids and the obesity which you want to come back to uh, is all there. Mm. But the, the wider and the and the the upper echelons of this is what does it look like in 50 years time so there's you know the, we talked about AI and robotic overlords coming in and all that stuff which could happen uh, we could become increasingly more sedentary and insular and enclosed to the point where we all start developing severe mental issues of sociopathy and inability to deal with other people lack of empathy um, selfishness and all of these things are rumbling around in that ether out there and health issues and food issues. and We're solving some of these problems. One of the companies we're working with in Slovenia, we've got a food wall in the new property. What um, does that mean? Um, so we grow, we use hydroponic um, and you know, rainwater catchment to actually uh, grow spinach and no inside okay. lettuce, all that type of stuff. And Humco, H-U-M-K-O is the company. He's at the very forefront of hydroponic food growth. And that is the, these urban farm type places that you're seeing pop up in America. That's the future of food. Mm. The quality of that food, it uses 100 times less water than standard uh, growing techniques. And the quality is beyond organic when it's done right. So we'll be introducing that and providing sort of education on how that all works as so well. So the garden patch could come back? Well, it's interesting in somewhere like Slovenia, they still have their garden patches. Yeah. But the garden patch, see, we're, you know, in somewhere like Dublin or London, the garden patch will be on your wall. Mm. And that will happen. You know, the food thing we, we can probably address. I mean, all the rest, we're just, uh, we're just not giving our bodies the chance to, to thrive. I mean, the human body. Would you ban are, GMO food? Given the choice, I wouldn't eat it. Yeah. But you can't you can't say yeah ban it. I mean, if you're if you're in a famine struck territory, it's a ridiculous thing to say don't eat that because it's GMO. Yeah. It solved one problem in a place where it was. What about needed. what about where do you stand on vaccinations? Yeah, good question. My little niece just had had hers. I mean, I I don't have children, um, and I wouldn't I wouldn't really have any other comment except to say that I, I think parents have the right to decide. It's it's one of those things, and yeah. I've never really looked at it in great detail. Obviously, I was vaccinated, and um, but I mean the theory being that you the the vaccination only works if everyone does it exactly. Exactly. So by saying you have the right as a parent to not do it, <coughs> that's the chink in the armor that allows the thing to come back, mm-hmm. which it measles is coming back in quite yeah, a way. Yeah, sure they say. And again, the reasons behind. Mm these things and again some of them are not important about sugar we can talk about sugar versus fat but some of them like this are important that you know it's supposed to cause autism and there's like a, you know that's clearly gone but everyone's like no 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 it's big pharma you know and this includes Trump and fake news and public relations and how my old ad industry is gone where you just don't know yeah. what mm-hmm. is true who's not just shilling something yeah. 
and in, in the past there was always this I used to say there was this great line between editorial and advertising or, or public relations advertorial and that's gone now you know you don't know what's what and who's who and you, you know you, you've got people like sharing ridiculous things like oh anchor butter has got aids in it because some <laughs> imp- oh my god and they're you know they're sharing all around yeah, facebook yeah, yeah. Um, well the vax thing is, has spread because when we were kids we would have had uh, you know measles mumps rubella yeah i believe that it's expanded now but i wouldn't get a flu shot for example no no neither would I, I. I just yeah, I'd just yeah. stay healthy but that's yeah. a vaccine you know that's yeah. like well, no, that that's not. I mean, yeah, that, that, is, that, is it the same thing? Or the is other it not? thing is that we've eradicated smallpox, measles, these these things by vaccination. Yeah. Edward Jenner, etc. And now people go, oh, I think there's mercury in that that might give my, you know. And meanwhile, smallpox goes back and kills quarter of the planet yeah. or something, you know, yeah. or something else. I mean, the the smallpox measles mutation emerges, and we're kind of fucked. But again, that's just, I'm not, I'm an ant, I'm a pro-vaccination, of course. I think people are slightly stupid if they think otherwise, but they may be proved right. But that's another example of a thing where you can just sit there as a very guy who knows a lot about a lot of this sort of stuff and go, ah, yeah, everyone should have their right to do it. But I don't know a lot about it. I've never really... Yeah. I've never really, you know the principles. Well, I don't but know. I, know I haven't in, got kids either. In, I think in Italy, it's actually legislation that you must, it's, it's yeah, law it's that you well, must. Yeah. Um, so if that's the law, that's the law. Yeah. Yeah, you you got to do it. So, what does the future hold after you finished extra time? What do you, what, what, where do you see yourself pooling? Um, I, I'd love to take the, the Lifehouse project to the next level. I'd love to create something that, so there's IP that we can work with big developers. Like I say, I, I abhor the places where we put older mm. people. Uh, I love a project they did in the Netherlands, a dementia village, which was just a fabulous piece of design. But you know we've got a bit of a homeless problem back here. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, but... Um, of course, the other thing is that there's just too many people in the world. And that's only going to keep going. Like Africa, you can see it down there already. I mean, the, the population explosion, it's going to be, I think, 5 billion by 2050. Mm-hmm. I mean, it's, it's off the scale. Mm-hmm. How, how, do you, how, do you, how do you manage that? Well, they have, there is some evidence to suggest that once countries start getting stability, the birth rate falls. Because a lot of the reason for the birth rate is that there's high infant mortality, they need bodies to help in the fields. There's, the, you know, there's, there's a lot of illness. There's a lot of lack of vaccinations. People like take chances with getting as many kids as they can because that's the way it works. Oh, right. Africa's got a long way to go. The world yeah. does. What do you say to your younger self if you had to go back and talk in his ear? I probably wouldn't go to college if I was doing it again. Why? Because it just feels like a couple of years. It was great. Crack. I agree with you. It feels yeah. like a couple of years wasted. I yeah. think uh, your approach is pretty good. Everything you need to know is in front of you. It's mm. now on the internet. Mm. So technology can have phenomenal benefits. It has its downsides. But if you if you can you go a la carte, I mean, yeah. you, you could find the contents of an entire... I could go back and do my degree yeah. in a year just by applying myself to the internet. And you look at, you know, Musk has started the school and he doesn't teach languages because that's a problem that would be solved by technology. Our ability to... You have to, a babel fish in yeah, the ear. Yeah, yeah. But you're right. I, I think... It's a bad application, isn't it, really? Mm. It's about if you want to do something, you can find... You don't, you don't have to go to college to do it. You can find out if you apply yourself, you can learn. You might need it. I mean, if you need to do heart surgery or yeah. rocket science, yeah. fair enough. Yeah. But. Yeah. So you'd say don't go to college. Anything else? Um, I, I would try and 
understand the body a bit better a bit earlier. I mean, when I had the, the big injuries, I mean, they were big turning points in my life. It took me a long time to go over the fact that I wasn't going to be an international athlete anymore. Mm. You just think you're invincible. So yeah, I'd, I'd try and learn a bit of physical humility a bit earlier. Mm. I got to 30 and I couldn't run, and that's when I thought, I need to now think about this very seriously because I'm in big, big trouble. And you would have said, don't go on for the second half. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> that yeah. guy again. Yeah, so you, you, just to listen, listen to the body much sooner. Uh, but that's a gift I've now been given by virtue of serious injury. I, I now am really tuned in, and uh, I'll give myself, I hope, the best shot at you know, that health span that we talk about mm. but there's still no guarantees I mean this is just you get one run of this Tony mm. <laughs> O'Neill thanks a lot for being on a point with Shawnee Beal really enjoyed that as I knew I would one of the fittest guys I know so he's liable to just drop dead of a heart attack while he's filming extra time here I'll be first on the scene with the news I'm sorry I'm joking Louise if you're listening thanks a million for being on the podcast it was great chat look after yourself and the best of luck with the new movie thanks